So, good morning. How y'all doing? Yeah? It's hard to know behind the mask. Like, preaching to a mask, it's like, I don't know. You could be making any expression. I don't even know. I mean, keep them on. That's, that's cool. But, like, anyway, um, amens are helpful because I, I don't know what's going on behind that thing. So, anywho, hopefully you stay keyed in because there's a lot of things that could potentially be warring for your attention. Like me. So, I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing in Mark today, the Gospel according to Mark. And we're actually closing the book on chapter 4. So, we've been in chapter 4 for a few weeks now. And those few weeks have been stretched out over the beginning of, well, pre-COVID and then right at the beginning of COVID. And then we took a break to talk about the gospel-centered life, and now we're back. And so we're finishing out chapter 4, which was only supposed to take a few weeks, and really did only take a few sermons. But, you know, we've been doing this since February. So today is a way that we're putting a bow on chapter 4 and seeing a beautiful cohesion uh, to all the elements in chapter 4, to see the wisdom of Jesus as a master teacher. I don't know if you've ever tried to teach somebody something, and it just turns out to be like when Tim the Toolman Taylor listens to Wilson and across the fence, and then he goes inside, and then he talks to Jill, and he tries to explain it, you know? And you realize that you're not as good of a teacher as you thought you were. Well, I just want us all to sit at the feet of Jesus and realize how just incredibly wise he was to, to teach us in a multifaceted way about how powerful his word is. So, this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. So if you've got a paper Bible, you know, flip there. If you have an app, flip there, and I'll just trust that you're not on Facebook. So um, unless you're, like, posting quotes or whatever, or little prayer hands, that's acceptable, I guess. So as you're turning there, I just... Pastorally, I just want to connect with you on a certain level because I know that there are just a myriad of things that are all good and could be occupying our minds simultaneously. Uh, And a man named Kevin DeYoung spoke this over his church, and I just feel that um, our church would benefit from this. And I know I benefited from this spiritually, too. It's kind of a centering thought. Kevin DeYoung said, in times like these, there are a lot of things that we can go to in God's Word so that we might find help. That would be an appropriate word from us. But what you need most of all from me as a pastor and from Pastor Josh is to have that preacher continue to faithfully just expound and proclaim the word of God to you. You don't need me or Pastor Josh to try to pretend and be an expert on science or epidemiology. You don't need us to be a political pundit. You don't need us to be an economist, even though there could be economic instability in your own life right now. You don't need us to be Dave Ramsey for you. You don't need us to be a talking head to say that politically things will get better or get worse, or we're on the edge of something that we don't even know. You don't need any of that from this desk during this hour. You don't need your pastor to say that. You need a pastor to do what pastors are supposed to do and what we're trained to do, and that's just to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. So that's what we're trying to do. And there's just a big, wide field of stuff that I'm sure that everyone wants to talk and think about. But right now, 
it's obvious, and, and it's God's grace to us that we can get together every week and remember that knowing, understanding, living the Word of God is supreme, even over a bunch of worthy topics of conversation. So I'm just very thankful for the sacred nature of Sunday mornings. I'm very thankful that in our tradition and by the way that God has chosen to reveal himself, we can block out a little bit of time and say, only God's word matters right now. And I hope that you can see that in patterns in your own life, too. And so I want preaching to be a reflection of, of that kind of time. As we walk through the word together, we experience it, and we not just learn and listen, but we walk with the Lord during this time in a way that could hopefully be simple and clear. So that's what we're doing, right? So for the majority of Mark chapter 4, Jesus has been telling a series of parables that have essentially been showing us what it's like to listen to the Lord. I just wanted to recap what we talked about last week. So four ways that uh, Jesus is showing us in these parables that we are to listen to the Lord. Four characteristics uh, that define listening to the Lord. We see that we're, we're to listen receptively, like the parable of the soils, not that stony soil, the rocky soil, not any of the types of unfruitful soil, but we're to listen with an eye toward receiving the truth. We're to listen obediently, like the lamp on a stand that gives light to the whole room. We're to listen dependently, like that farmer who planted the crop and then went to bed, knowing that God would give the increase and depending on him to do it. And we're to listen confidently, just like we saw last week with the parable of the mustard seed, knowing that God is giving increase to things that even seem insignificant and growing his kingdom in a way that's inescapable. But even more fundamentally than listening to the Lord and listening in a way that gives honor to him, these parables were being used by the Lord to illustrate the power of God's word. Because what are we listening to? If we listen with all these characteristics to a bunch of junk, then we've wasted our time. But he's showing by our posture and the importance of our posture, he's giving glory to his word. And he's showing how essential it is. So let's look at those parables just again very quickly, looking at how precious God's word is. So God's word was the seed that had been sown into that fertile soil. God's word was the light that radiated from the lamp that needed to be platformed so that that radiant light could go as far as possible. God's word is what produced the harvest that the farmer couldn't have done even if he tried. No matter how many Wikipedia articles he read and YouTube videos he watched, God's word was that harvest that only comes from him. And God's word, even when it seems small and inconsequential, will in God's time grow into the biggest plant in the garden. So today, at the end of Mark chapter 4, it's not another parable, but it relates very directly to the things that we've been talking about before. Today is a, a passage that will be well known to people that have been in church for a while, but if this is your first time ever hearing about Jesus calming the storm, welcome. It's crazy. It's, it's like if this was fan fiction, you would never write a story like this ever. It's just something that makes you stop and say, what? Why? There's something to learn here. 
So, and Jesus calming the storm, I want you to see that even though it's a clear and simple thing that can stand on its own and that can be profoundly revelatory about who Jesus is and profoundly encouraging on a personal level, it's not only a beautiful standalone truth. It's the culmination and the application of all the things that we've been learning from the Lord in these parables. So I I said it this way. Jesus calming the storm is the application of the truth that he teaches in the preceding parables. He is demonstrating, as he calms the storm, that his word is powerful. It's kind of like... Um, in college, maybe community college. I don't know if you're familiar. Some classes, um, I went to seminary. I didn't take a lot of science classes, unfortunately. But I'm told there are some classes that have a lecture component and a lab component, right? Engineering classes probably have that. So you have part where you learn foundational truth. You learn the nature of the thing that you're working with. And then you have another component which you may or may not end up attending, and there's like attendance in both of them, and you know, but you need the lab component to apply the truth and to actually understand how it's going to work, like on the job, essentially. So today, what we're seeing in Jesus calming the storm is kind of like the lab component to what he was teaching in these parables. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, here's the main point for today. So just in a sentence, get your phone out, take a picture, write it. We'll keep it up long enough for you to write it. So our main point today is that the word dispels our earthly fear. That's the first thing that it does. It dispels our earthly fear. And then after it does that, it inspires us to be in awe of God. So notice the concepts of fear and awe. They're ever present. The point is not to get rid of a feeling that something is bigger than you. But the point is that Jesus is reorienting it. So let me say it again. The word dispels our earthly fear, and it inspires us to be in awe of God. So this morning, this may be comforting or not comforting, but I don't even have an outline. Um, That could mean we could go either way with this. But what I want to do is actually just walk through verses 35 through 41, verse by verse, and kind of like a corporate Bible study, be showing you as the as the story develops um, how Jesus is, is speaking to us. So to impose an outline on it seemed like too much. We just need to let it stand for itself, and we need to just see the Lord for who he is presenting himself to be. So... With that being said, let's walk our way through it verse by verse. And one, let's see what the word actually says. Let's do honor to the scriptures. But then let's also listen with a heart to say, God, what word do you have for me here? Not what more can I learn necessarily, although truth is absolutely important. But what word do you have for me right now with where my heart is and where you have me in life, Lord? So let's start in verse 35, and let's see uh, how late we can make lunch, right? (laughs) So verse 35 says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. 
So let's stop there and let's get a little bit of context. What's going on here? So, like we said, throughout the whole chapter, Jesus has been teaching, 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 parable after parable after parable to crowds. And his M.O. throughout the book of Mark, throughout the Gospels, throughout his public ministry, his M.O. is to be going from town to town and preaching this message, preaching this message in a way that is applicable to folks, preaching to certain people in an all-knowing way in in a way that will have his desired effect. He's preaching about the gospel of the kingdom from town to town to town to town. Jewish towns, we'll see later in chapter 5 that there are Gentile places that he's going, and he's expounding the gospel of the kingdom to specific groups of people in succession. Boom, boom, boom. He's on tour. He'd like have a t-shirt where you could say like date, 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 location, location, location. He's itinerant. He's bringing this message in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people in an all-wise fashion. And so right now, they're in the process of taking him from one place to the other. And the next town happens to be on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And conveniently, Jesus is actually already in the boat. They don't have to prepare that. And you say, what? How did Jesus get in the boat? So go back up to the top of the chapter, verse 1. Or we'll have that on the screen, too. And we'll see the context of how he was teaching. So, verse 1 says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So here's the context. If you're visualizing what's happening, this is how the teaching is taking place. Jesus is taking advantage of his environment at the moment, which is just kind of fascinating to me. Uh, So the crowds began gathering, and back in the day, you know, you didn't have artificial amplification, so you had to survey your environment and see how you were going to make sure that the people in the back could hear you. Um, So, you know, if you're on a hillside, you can put people along the hillside and you can be at the bottom. Something to create an amphitheater-like effect. But Jesus, in his context here, didn't have that. So he looks around and he gets in the boat, goes out a little ways, not too far, and then the people fan out on the shore in order to listen to him. And he's speaking from the boat, seated in rabbinical fashion, because you all know, I don't know if you knew this, uh, the rabbi would sit while he taught. And I've been standing the whole time, so that'd be kind of nice. And all you guys would stand up, and I would sit down, and that would be the posture of teaching. So that's what he did. He sat down in traditional traditional rabbinical fashion, and folks fanned out on the, on the shore, and he used the water as a mode of natural amplification. Pretty smart, right? So here he is in the boat, teaching, using the water to amplify, making use of his environment. And after he finishes teaching, they can just conveniently turn on the trolling motor, right? Not right. And just start the journey. So he's already in there. Just try to imagine the picture for a minute. I think that that helps me to understand a story like this, which involves vivid imagery. Uh, Just imagine him sitting in that boat and try to imagine what kind of boat are we even talking about? We know that scholars tell us in recent years, the hull of a fishing boat was discovered about five miles south from Capernaum. And scholars say that 
Um, it was dated to right around the time of Jesus, and there's a chance that it's pretty similar to what the disciples would be using. So we want to show that here. This is actually, it's not the whole thing, so, but this is what they found in the seabed there. Um, and you see all the metal things kind of holding it up to give it the sort of shape that it would have had. Can you look at the next one? There's people in the background, kind of gives you maybe a little bit of a, a sense of scale right there. So this is obviously not like the Jesus boat, but this is kind of a frame of reference for what we're talking about. So they say that these boats measured about 26 and a half feet long, measured about seven and a half feet wide, so longer than if you put your arms out like this, a little bit wider than, than an average wingspan, and about four and a half feet high. It's made out of cedar and oak, and it can hold about 15 people. So chances are, putting all that information together, uh, it would have been Jesus and the 12, and then, you know, maybe there's a seat or two empty right there, but maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's who's in the boat there. So, envision it's evening after a long day, session after session of teaching, and they're making their way to the next place. You can picture the sun's probably setting. There are other boats with them, like we saw. There are other folks from the crowd that decided to go with them to the other side. So there's a small caravan of boats happening. And after a long day of teaching and crowds and activity, they're people tired. You know what I mean by people tired? And so as they shove off to the other side, they're no doubt just looking forward to a quiet night, looking to recharge the social batteries a little bit. They had in their minds what the future would hold. They were being good stewards, probably preparing for the next day and the next date and how to be the most effective in their next context. So they were looking forward to prepping a little bit and having a quiet journey. But the future didn't hold that. How many of y'all hope for a little peace and quiet in the future, but the future may not hold that? So it turned out to be a night that they would never forget. And 2,000 years later, we haven't forgotten, and we're still talking about what happened on the trip. So let's keep going to verse 37. Verse 37 says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So they, they, they start to make their way across, and as they made their way across, a storm arose that appeared to have caught them off guard. And you would say, how on open water could you be caught off guard by a storm? Isn't there normally long visibility? Haven't you checked that weather lately? Like, how can a storm actually catch you off guard? So the geography of Galilee is helpful to know here. So there's a, a picture, um, kind of like an engraving, that can show you kind of the topology of the Sea of Galilee. So you have the sea here sitting at sea level, as seas do, and uh, around them, there are some steep hillsides, and so you'll have warm sea air right here, hanging out on the water, and then, you know, just like coming over South Mountain, sometimes cool air can spill over, and as it spills over onto the warm seawater, you can get storms that arise quickly, and storms that may be there and gone in a minute, but storms that have kind of a punch to them, and so... Likely, one of these quickly appearing storms is what has impacted them there. So the disciples are frightened by the sudden nature of it. 
another thing to keep in mind, the Sea of Galilee is not just like this tiny little thing. The Sea of Galilee is actually a pretty big lake. It's 13 miles long and and 8 miles wide. So it's not like one of those lakes that you can get out and swim laps from one side to the other. Like it's a it's a hefty body of water. It's it's considerably large. It has 64 square miles of surface area. And in Maryland, you don't really think about lakes being gigantic. We have these small man-made things. So let me just put that in perspective for you. Greenbrier, you know, right down 40, is um, it has a surface area of. 0.0656 square miles. So I already did the math. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is 975 times larger than Greenbrier. So you got this little boat. I mean, not little, little, but not huge. Uh, going from one side of this lake to the other. And it would be really easy if something goes wrong to be stuck and to not really... Um, even if the worst happened, be able to swim to shore. Like, if you're out there, you're out there. And I don't know if you've ever been stuck in a boat with a mechanical problem at a place where you wouldn't be able to just, like, make it back to shore of your own, like, willpower. That's a special kind of helplessness, to be out on the sea and to know that outside elements could spell your doom. So here are these fishermen caught in a quick-moving, intense storm. And, uh, oh, by the way, the Sea of Galilee in places can be up to 140 feet deep. So, you know, not encouraging. So this must have been a big storm. Why? Because the disciples, some of them were professional fishermen. So it's not like this is their first rodeo. Like, they've been in bad weather before. They can manage. This is their living. This is how they, this is their bread and butter. So they they know how to do good weather, bad weather. And somehow this storm was of a level where they were afraid for their lives. So they were afraid for their lives, and likely they were afraid of, uh, afraid on behalf of the lives of the other people in the boats. There are boats following them, and they know that, in a sense, they're, leading these people and responsible for these people. So you have these folks that fish and stay out on the water for a living panicking because of the storm. So you got the waves crashing in. You've got the boat filling with water. It's the dead of night, too, so you don't have the advantage of daylight. It's not a good situation. And to make matters worse, the one person that they believe could really help them in this situation oblivious seemingly oblivious and that's important the seemingly from their perspective the lord just seemed to not be engaged so let's look at verse 38 it says but he jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing So this gets recorded in Matthew, Luke, Mark. In Matthew's account, they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And in Luke's account, they say, master, master, we are perishing. And so the tone of Matthew and Luke sounds like a cry for help. We've done everything. And even outside, even in our full professional capacity, this is too much for us. So you see this cry for help, and and I'm sure it legitimately was a cry for help. But in Mark, there's a tone that 
maybe not be may not be reflected in the other gospels. Do you see that? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The disciples are frightened by the storm, and they're upset with Jesus' apparent lack of concern for their well-being. Can't you see what's happening, Jesus? And maybe some of you have thought to say that in certain points of your life. Maybe you've said that recently. Aren't you aware, Lord? I can't believe that your posture would be this if you were truly aware of what is going on in my life. Don't you have a Facebook account, Jesus? Don't you actually know, like, the condition of the world right now? So they go and they wake up the one man who they believe might be able to do something here. This is the guy that we've seen do miracles. And they figure maybe he can do something to help them. Hey, Jesus, don't you want to pitch in? If you're not going to get us out of this, I mean, here's a bucket. Do you mind helping? Like, we need all the help we can get. And how in the world was Jesus sleeping in the first place. I think it's good to give a little bit of attention to that. Um, in all of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark at least, um, there's only one account where we're specifically told Jesus is actively sleeping. And it's right here. And how unlikely is it that this would be the one time where we're told, here Jesus is peacefully sleeping. So there's no indication that he was just faking it. You know how you can do with your kids or your kids can do with you or something like that. One eye open, like fake sleeping or whatever. He's not, there's no indication that he's like trying to teach them a lesson necessarily by like strategically, maybe in a sense, but in, a, in another sense, Jesus is fully God and he's also fully man. And he has poured himself out by teaching the entire day and care for people. And he knows even more than the disciples know, he knows where they're going. They know where they're going, but he knows what awaits him on the other side. The disciples knew that they were going over to the other side in a place that was more rural than the place that they had currently been ministering. So maybe they thought it might be a change of pace, but Jesus knew better than that. You'll see next week in chapter 5 that there was a man uh, inhabited by multiple demons, so many that he said, call me legion. A legion of demons inhabited this man, and Jesus engages with him shortly after they come to the other side. So Jesus knew he had poured himself out here. He knew what awaited him. And in his humanity, he said, strategically, rest is needed if I'm going to be helpful, if I'm going to be ministering on the other side here. It's encouraging to see even Jesus knew that there's a natural rhythm and that rest was important. And he prioritized and strategically said, here we are. I'm resting so that I can continue serving. But there's another way to look at it, too. Uh, And John Piper put it in a way that um, I thought was helpful to me. So I'm going to read you this little bit from him. John Piper says, It is interesting that earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 1, everyone else is asleep and he's awake praying. While here, everyone else is frantically awake and he's sleeping. Perhaps there's something of a lesson for us here as Christians. That at times we're called to spend with God in prayer, even when the whole world may be frantic. And other times when the world is frantic and in panic, we perhaps can sleep because we know that God is in charge. 
So there's a there's a, a frame of existence where Jesus is saying, I am fully trusting and I know my limits and I am resting because I know that physically I'm spent and in my fatigue I have perfect trust in myself in a sense but his trust and his oneness with with God is something that we look to with worship so let's keep going verse 39 says and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm it's beautiful this is where we worship this is this is what we put up on the pedestal. This is the authority of Jesus right here. But it's also really strange, isn't it? Like this this part, this is not if you were writing this story, and thank God we're not writing the Bible, but if you were to be predicting the next step in the narrative, this is not exactly how anyone would ever write it. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Imagine how strange it must have been One, to be in the middle of such a life-threatening situation and for immediate calm to happen, just at a word. But also, put yourself in their situation to see and to experience a life-threatening situation and then to see your teacher stand up from asleep and just start yelling at the weather. So for that split second, they're saying... What kind of a solution is this? He's yelling at the weather. Like this like their human minds weren't able to wrap themselves around it in that moment probably. But here you see the storm rages. But when Jesus speaks, it just stops. He uses the same language here that is used in other places in the gospels for exorcism. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus rebukes the demon and says, "Be silent." come out of him and there's an imperative nature to this verb that we see here too he's claiming and exercising authority over the weather in the same way now this doesn't mean that we should make the connection that the weather is being inhabited by demonic forces necessarily but it does mean that jesus has the same authority over the weather over the clouds over the storm and over disease the same thing that he has the same authority over sin sickness and unclean spirits that we've seen in these other miracles he's exercising that same sort of authority over the atmosphere at this point part of what we're meant to see in mark's gospel is that there is constant opposition to jesus as he presses forward preaching the gospel in all these contexts, there's constant opposition coming from the Pharisees, coming from this storm, and coming from a man inhabited by demons. But every step of the way, Jesus is reminding us of his sovereign authority. Verse 40, Jesus turns to the disciples and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So the storm rages, the disciples rush to the back of the boat and rebuke Jesus. Don't you care that we're perishing right now? Can't you kind of get with it and realize that we need a little bit of help? So Jesus stands up and he rebukes the weather and asserts his authority. 
And now we have a third rebuke. So the disciples rebuke him, he rebukes the weather, and now he turns to the disciples and offers a loving rebuke to them. We don't have an eye into the tone necessarily, but I would imagine when he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Maybe it was like that. Not over the top anger, but persistently, patiently, like a father to his kids. Haven't you seen my repeated faithfulness? over and over and over already. So even after all of that, have you still no faith? Maybe patiently saying, uh, is there a certain amount of faithfulness? Rhetorically saying, is there a certain amount of miracles and action and provision that I could do that would get us to the place where you would actually be trusting me in this moment right now? Sometimes I ask myself that, honestly. And I think it points out to us that uh, faith has an important aspect that's rooted in the future. Now, our faith is a historic faith, and our faith is um, an embrace of certain foundational truths. Our faith is not about our feelings primarily. Our faith is rooted and grounded in the written Word of God. And so, in that way, our, our faith is rooted in a past action, primarily the Lord's action of making us alive. But right now, what I'm talking about is, as we experience faith, we have to think about it um, in a future way. How are we going to obey the next time? Do we have the trust in God and, and the confidence in His character in this moment, this present moment, where I have the ability to obey? We don't have the ability to go back and fix disobedience in the past, and we don't have the ability to ensure future obedience. The only place where obedience is really able to be worked on is this present moment. And so we say to ourselves, can I, do I, will I trust the Lord in this moment enough to step into future obedience? Does that make sense? As Jesus is telling them and reminding them implicitly, why are you so afraid? Have you still, the word still, could be circled in reference to time, in reference to past events. Even after a procession of faithfulness in front of him, even after this timeline that we let wash over us last week of God's faithfulness and the inevitable growth of God's kingdom, even after all of that, is there something still missing in our hearts in this present moment that's preventing us from stepping into obedience in the next moment. I think that's what Jesus is pulling out here. This is where we're working. Can't you see that I've been faithful over and over? All of us who are Christians can look back personally and see God providing for us. Probably more than once. Maybe just once. If you are a Christian, you can see God sovereignly, wisely providing for you by making you alive and making you a Christian. But you know the longer you walk with him, the sweeter it gets. And the more times you can recount of God being good to you. And we can take comfort in that. But we take comfort not just because he did it, but because we know that that very same God can do it again. In this moment, the next moment, the next moment. That's the nature of this faith. So there they are, still on the boat. And Jesus persistently, patiently, pushing to a point of discomfort, but out of love, 
wants them to know and to believe that greater is the one who is in the boat with them than all of the power of the sea roiling about them like sea billows rolling. Greater is he who is in the boat. So let's look at verse 41 as we shut it down today. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obeys him? The disciples in this moment are filled with awe and fear, even greater than the fear that enveloped them just a moment ago. It's one thing to fear a storm immediately pressing in on your life and making you feel more vulnerable than you ever have. But it's a totally different kind of fear to meet the maker of that storm. Kevin DeYoung says of it, In their minds, the only thing more frightening than being in a small boat in the middle of a big storm is being in a small boat with a man who shouts at big storms and gets his way. (laughs) What are we working with here? What is the nature of this man that we follow? He's just so awe-inspiringly powerful that sometimes it makes us take a step back. Who then is this? That's the question that they're left with. That's the question I want to leave you with today. That's the question that the scriptures are drawing us to. Look at the Lord and say, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. And as they look at him, as they see his authority in action, as they see the sea waves still out, probably, as good Jewish people, they may have thought of the story of Jonah. And so that's really where I want to leave you today, because Jesus, in a beautiful way, is rehearsing the story of Jonah. Jesus is platforming himself as a greater, more perfect picture of what Jonah was illustrating to us. Jesus refers to himself as one that is even greater than Jonah. He explicitly does that in the book of Matthew. And I just want you to think about the comparison and and let the awe of God inform this. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you'll know that Jonah was also asleep on a boat in the middle of a raging storm. That storm was sent by God to keep Jonah from running away. And the storm in Galilee was threatening to keep Jesus from running ahead into further ministry. Jonah was awakened so that he might pray to his God. And Jesus is awakened so that he might prove that he is God. Jonah was thrown overboard to calm the sea. And Jesus merely throws out a word, and the sea is still. Who is this man with such unlimited authority? Yes, Jesus is greater even than Jonah. And that makes him worthy of worship, adoration. Makes him worthy of reflection, whatever way that that can be processed. That brings us back to our main point. The word dispels our earthly fear and inspires us to be in awe of God. So I want to revisit that thing that I introduced to you at the very beginning. Look at this: these two concepts here. Dispelling our earthly fear and inspiring an awe of God. Fear and awe are kind of similar terms here. So you see that the point is not to get rid of fear and live a life that's like 
fearless. Like that can be like a trendy thing. Like I'm a fearless person. I am. And, and the Bible does say be strong and courageous, but the Bible never says eradicate the concept of fear from your life. The Bible does say to replace the fear of man, to replace the fear of death, to replace the fear of instability or insecurity, to replace the fear of lack of provision, to replace it with something that the book of Proverbs calls a clean fear. The fear of the Lord is clean. So he says, and this is this is not something that any of us will ever fully understand. I'm just up here proclaiming a mystery to you. The Bible says to replace the fear of what our eyes see at this level and to lift our eyes up and to have a true fear that gives us perspective. To have the awe of God and His majesty and His authority and to then look back, as we can see as we're memorizing Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So lifting our eyes to the Lord, enveloping ourselves in the awe of God with what little thimble full of information and worship uh, Information that we can get about God. And then as we look back to the things of this earth, which we need to, to be informed by an awe of God, to have a supreme view of God that will put the other things in perspective. And I would think that as the disciples said, who then is this, that maybe they got a little closer to that. And that's my prayer for us. Not that we would have less fear in our lives, but that we would have more awe of God in our lives that would inform the decisions that we're making. That would inform the way that we relate to one another. That would inform the way that we check our budgets. That would inform the ways that we plan, short, medium, long term, in our lives. That we would have an awe of God that would be setting the scene for Christian obedience. It's not something that we can conjure up. That's not something that we can manufacture. It is something that we can rehearse together as we study the Word. And we long to do that in life groups and deep groups to, to see the material that inspires that awe. But that's all we can do is look at the book. The Spirit has to come to us and to fill us with that awe. We can't conjure it up on our own. But it's completely essential to do anything else. It leaves us in a pretty dependent place, right? looking to him and saying, I can't do this by myself. So that's where I want to leave us today. Looking to him, saying, I can't even take the next step without the Spirit empowering that next step. I can't even see you the way that you want to be seen unless you reveal that to me. So here I am, God. So let's close in prayer, and then let's go singing about the holiness of God. Jesus, we thank you that we have the ability to see even as much as you have allowed us to see right now. We thank you that we have a picture of you and your authority. We thank you that you've graciously shown that to us. And we ask that by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to gain an awe of God that would empower us to live in obedience. Lord, don't let our our views shrink to this to-do list kind of Christianity that just makes us think that maybe we can figure this out on our on our own. 
Help us to have something that's almost hard to contain. Help us to approach the scriptures filled with awe and wonder and just waiting to see what you would reveal about yourself and how we could obey. Help that awe of God to drive us to live in a way that's radical and sacrificial. Lord, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. We're totally dependent on you. And we confess this to you. And we we long to worship you for that holiness. In your name, amen.